today on CityCast DC. Summers here are hot, and they're extra uncomfortable for people who can't find solace in their homes or in their offices' ACs. StreetSense vendor Chris Cole was unhoused for a chunk of the pandemic, and she told me about how people experiencing homelessness survived the summers, and also what she thinks of the city council's heat plan. Today is August 18th, 2022. I'm lead producer Priyanka Tilve, and this is CityCast DC. Do you want to just start by introducing yourself, Chris? Yeah, my name is Chris Cole. I am 37 and I've experienced homelessness. And I know that you're now housed, thankfully, because it's a brutal summer out there. Yes. What were the last two years like for you when you were living outside? You know, I've been through some highs and some lows. I've been through the shelter system. I've stayed on park benches and a tent community where I spent the last probably year was where I was the most comfortable at when I was on the street. I think that the summers are uh, way worse than the winters. Like as soon as the sun comes up, that plastic tent becomes a sauna and you have to get out and even in order to really breathe well. So rising with the sun and then having to go to bed with the sun keeps you awake, you know, 12, 13 hours, 14 hours during the summer. So you're up, you're hot, you're miserable, you're finding shade to, to rest in and you're trying to move about and keep a lot of your belongings on you or if you're lucky enough to have a tent in the tent. So, yeah, that's pretty yeah. much. And you just described that inside the tent is like a sauna, but then you come out of the tent and it's 90 degrees. Yeah. So what do you do? Well, you're constantly like seeking shade or like trying to go to a park or somewhere that is, you know, heavily treed. That's why you see a lot of the people like in parks on benches, what's where they can find shade and not be bothered. And, you know, where it's, you know, just free to sit and things like that. Um, We went to a lot of parks and we went in in search of free water a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. During the pandemic, it was really hard to get bottled water. Thankfully, I was tented up next to a church that offered breakfast and dinner called Miriam's Kitchen. And so they gave us water in the morning when I was able to get three to four bottles in the morning and then the same in the evening. So I was uh, blessed, but so many others didn't have that. And they were constantly in search of businesses that would allow them to have water. Right. So you mentioned the pandemic kind of exacerbated the situation for you, made it even harder to find water. And since you were unhoused for two years, I mean, the pandemic was kind of a thing the entire time you were living outside. How did that happen? How did that start for you in the first place? Well, about two years ago when the pandemic started, I lost my job. Um, I was working for a media company called New Home Media. I lost my job and ended up losing my housing. And uh, I was dating someone who lived in D.C. So I happened to be just around the corner. I moved in with him and things just started to go even worse. And so experienced a little bit of domestic abuse. And I left and went to a woman's shelter. And that's how I started my homelessness, like right at the onset of the pandemic. I'm sorry that happened to you. Um, That sounds unsettling in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And so then you found your way to this tent community. What was that setting like? 
Yeah, we all formed a little community. If when you see a whole bunch of tents around, it's normally a little community of people that kind of trust each other. And um, where I was in front of the Kennedy Center, we had about 12 to 15 tents. So we had about 20 people out there. And um, the smaller the tent, the smaller the lifestyle. And you kind of always start with a little two-person tent, and then it's an upgrade to a three-person tent. And then when you see those big tents, you've made it. Like, <laughs> yeah. you're homeless rich. <laughs> so um, I I got to, you know, a little, little five-person tent where I had enough to actually have some belongings and feel like I had a room and some space. So I felt really blessed. And I felt safer, unfortunately, like in the tent community than I did in a lot of the shelters. When you're in the shelters, they necessarily have a lot of bed bugs, like roaches, rats inside the buildings. And it's just not the cleanliness that you would want for yourself and for others. And then with the pandemic happening, there were outbreaks of COVID, you know, within the shelters so often that it just seemed more practical and was more practical with the rules and everything to be in a tent community. Oh, that makes so much sense. And it's really telling that you would prefer to be in a tent that you've described as a sauna to the shelters, given all of those other factors that you just mentioned. Yeah, I just felt that I could better protect myself and my belongings inside a tent. There are so many women that I've met out here that have had their identity stolen in, in shelters. And even myself, like dealing with the bed bugs and how they torment your body and give you a rash everywhere. It just mars your skin. You're in a perpetual itchy state. So to add that to the weather and any other things you may be going through as a female, you know, it's just being a woman out on the streets presents even more opportunities for things to go awry than for, you know, with the men. So, okay. So you moved from the shelters to these tents mm -hmm. and you talked a little bit about how Miriam's kitchen helped you out, but what about the other people in your tent community? Did you all kind of work together in some sense to deal with the heat or was it kind of a every woman for herself kind of situation? It's kind of, you know, every person for themselves. There's not much really that we could do except for share water. Like, uh, we would get donations. We had the storage tent. And so we all kind of stood as a community with food donations and things like that. But as far as, you know, like beating the heat, everybody kind of had their own plan of where they would go, what they were doing. And towards the end of the summer is when we started seeing the cooling centers. Right. Yeah. Tell me about the cooling centers, because I see that the D.C. government, D.C. council is constantly talking about how when there's a heat emergency, which means that the temperature has gone over 95 degrees. They're open up these 44 cooling centers across the city. First of all, I guess, did you know about these? I didn't know about all of them. And when we found out it was kind of late in the summer, it was already like July. And so it, things have been pretty hot. And this was just last summer in 2021. So I only made it to one of the cooling centers, you know, one of the churches that we normally would go to. But now instead of kicking you out, they allow you to stay for three or four hours and to just be out of the heat. They serve cold water and coffee. And um, there was like a limit on how many people could be in the building. And so there was always a line out the building as one, as a few people go in, a lot of people are coming in. So I bet now with the 44 centers open that it's probably not as overcrowded as it was when I first started going. Sure. Well, actually, I think, unfortunately, according to some street sense reporting, in fact, a lot of the cooling centers aren't actually operational. So there's oh. technically 44 of them, but half of them aren't actually operational most days. And when they are open, 
it's limited hours and so they are crowded and you mentioned that you saw lines uh yeah outside of the one that i went to 1313 that's a church down here in northwest there was always a line outside so they make it pretty clear that once you go in you know to save your seat and just you know stay seated because you you know if you leave for a smoke break or anything like that you've lost your place and, and you know other people will come in Oh, yeah, of course. And then also, I'm just curious about how it works if you're like if you're living in a tent community and you have all your belongings, the tent and everything that's in it. How does that work for if you want to go to a cooling center? In our community, we kind of had people that would always be there. Like there was not security, but like someone who's always in their tent to watch things. But most people don't have that kind of security. Like when you see ladies pushing their buggies and their carts and things like that, those ladies don't have uh, tents. So I was kind of lucky that the community was right across the street from the church because it kind of made me feel a lot safer. But we did have thefts uh, and things like that throughout the couple of years that I was there. People do, unfortunately, put pilferage and go through your belongings, you know, looking for your valuables. Right. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That security is everything then. Yeah. And it's also just hard because I've read that some of the cooling centers at least don't allow you to bring a lot of things in with you. No, a lot of the times it's a two bag minimum. So as a homeless person, you kind of you you know that you have to keep it light anyway, because once you're identified as homeless, like it limits where you can go and what you can do. A lot of stores don't want you lurking around and, you know, it gets harder to go somewhere and use the restroom. They realize that you're not a paying customer a little bit faster. And it's always a telltale. I think now that I've been homeless, like in D.C., like when I see someone who has a lot of bags or at least, you know, if you've got like more than one hand that can carry, then you might be homeless. You might be experiencing homelessness. So it's a lot more people than you would actually even think of that may be experiencing homelessness in D.C. I saw a lot of people that actually worked and lived in tent communities. Wow. What about the hygiene aspect of it? In summer, that must be really hard to handle, too. Yeah. There were a couple of churches that have showers. So going to get a shower and get your clothes washed is kind of a luxury. But luckily, you know, where we were situated, 1313 was another church that I went to. Well, it's the same church that was the cooling center. They had showers mm-hmm. and Georgetown Ministries, I believe, okay. was another place that we went to to get showers. OK, got it. And so you talked about how Miriam's Kitchen helped you out a lot. What about people that didn't live near there or didn't live near other churches or organizations that were assisting the unhoused? Well, there were a lot of churches that were actually coming out to help those that just tent communities that did exist. And I would say like that the people in the tents relied a lot on those donations. A lot of even just regular people who were not affiliated with churches would come by and bring foods and lunches and things like that. So you really get to rely on the kindness of um, the community. Yeah. That just must be really hard. Yeah. Like it's not something that's entirely reliable or that you can expect. Yeah. I feel like throughout the pandemic, because people were at home, I feel like they had more energy and and more to give because a lot of people were experiencing being cooped up in their houses and that it gave them an opportunity to get out and give back. So I think as people started to go back to work, we saw a drop in um, how often things were coming through. So I think a lot of the donations that we're getting were from people who were at home from the pandemic. 
I had only been homeless for two years, but I don't know where I would have been without those donations. They brought a lot of socks. They brought feminine hygiene products, mm -hmm. the waters. It was endless turkey bologna sandwiches. <laughs> and even uh, on the holidays, they were really good to us, you know, bringing turkey and Thanksgiving items and things like that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And actually, that brings me to the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is what can other D.C. citizens, D.C. residents do to help specifically with the heat in the summers? Taking cold water out to folks is probably the most important thing that you can do. There's not too many businesses that let you come in and get cold water. And I have to shout out Starbucks. They really do support um, the homeless community. You can go in there and get a free cup of ice and ice water. And they don't treat you any differently than they would a paying patron. And it's really nice to be treated so well. Mm. So taking um, cold water. And I know it, it's an extra step to go ahead and to cool the water before ahead of time. But it's really like imperative that you do. It makes a big difference. So yeah, that's what the average person can do. And just taking things that you may not be using in your home out like toilet paper and uh, socks, things like that would mm -hmm. be really beneficial to someone who doesn't have a home. Sure. Yeah, that's really great advice. And we talked about the cooling centers, but are there other resources that the government provides that you think were helpful? Mm. Maybe that silence is an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Oh, man. What are things that you wish the government had provided then? I'm not... We weren't really sure like how it worked, but I thought that the government was like invested, I guess, through churches and helping like with allotments and taxes and things like that to, mm -hmm. so that churches could be able to send people out to, to help us. So I'm not really sure. But as I'm looking out, people are getting housed. So yeah. um, I'm appreciative of the work that the government is doing to get us in houses. Yeah, that's good to hear. Do you know that if you call 311, the D.C.'s shelter hotline, they'll help transport people who are suffering from heat exhaustion to one of those cooling centers. Is that oh, information no. that's out there? No, I didn't know that. That's great information to have. Yeah, but it's not particularly useful if people who are living in the tent communities don't know it, I guess. Yeah. I wish that they would get that out there, though, because I didn't. Oh, they do have a shelter. Uh, I guess the shelter hotline vans that come through and bring blankets through the winter are probably part of that same program. Yeah. That makes so, sense. yeah. Yeah. And I guess with the cooling centers, too, you said you didn't learn about them until late in the summer. So maybe one thing the government could be doing better is just actually getting this information about the vast amount of work that they're doing to the people who need it. Yeah. That makes sense. How would you recommend that? the government get that information to people who are living in tent communities or shelters or anyone who needs it? They could definitely use the news a little bit better. And then those shelter hotline vans that come through because of 311. I think if they came through the same way that they did in the wintertime, because when you see one of those in the wintertime, you kind of signify that you can get a warm meal mm. and a blanket, but you don't really see them during the summertime. So I think having a lot more of those vans out would be really great so that they can disseminate the information because those vans get around almost each tent community. That's such a great suggestion because it's a format that they already have in place. They just need to expand when they do it. Yes. That's great. Yeah. Chris, thank you so much for talking with me. This was a really enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for having me. We're about to hit you with some news. But first, if this episode has inspired you to help DC's unhoused communities, check out our show notes for some suggestions on how you can do that.
Okay, time for the news. D.C.'s bus system is getting an upgrade. The district won a $10 million federal grant to get more electric buses and to expand its circulator fleet. Montgomery County, PG County, and Anne Arundel also got grant money, a collective $41 million. Here's hoping this means more buses actually coming through on time. Also, the D.C. Black Film Festival starts tonight. It's the show's COVID comeback after it was strictly virtual for the past two years. And so this year, they're going hybrid. For people who want to go in person, head to the Miracle Theater Thursday through Sunday. And then the films will be showcased online from August 21st to 28th. And lastly, if you listen to our episode on rats, you know that we at CityCast DC are very invested in tamping down on the city's rodent problem. And we've got some good news. The Department of Public Works says it's expected to get new trash super cans by mid-September, which should really help keep rats out of our alleys. Check out the link in our show notes to find out how you can get one of those sweet new bins. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cody Stemmerman. Our hosts are Bridget Todd and Michael Schaefer. And I'm lead producer Priyanka Tilvey. Music is by Alex Roldan. Special thanks to Street Sounds for putting us in touch with Chris for this interview. Check out their reporting in our show notes. And while you're there, subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Tuesday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. I mean, I just, I'm really, I genuinely am very invested in getting one of these bins. Like, that's important to me. I just want one now. Gerard just made them sound so magical, you know?